Okay, here we go. Today's class is dedicated in memory of Esther Chira, Esther Bat Adela Shalom, a woman who really was a true Eshet Chayel with a tremendous amount of love her from her children and her grandchildren. Yeshiloshim is in a couple of days from now. And, um, you know, we know her sons very well, and each one of them have a very unique and wonderful, wonderful, humble, and beautiful character. And we hope, is that Hashem, that our Torah today is elevation for her nishama, but they're coming to shul and praying and saying Kaddish and learning, and their children doing so is the real elevation for the nishama. So it's an honor for our words today to be dedicated in memory of a really wonderful woman. So, like I said, our last class, I feel like, was a month ago. But in the class, I said something. Well, let me say it this way. I think a lot of us approach this time of year a little negatively. And I kind of said that in the last class. I said, does anyone, do you like this time of year? And I think I used the words, I hate it. <laughs> to describe, it gets a little cold and it's serious, and it's heavy, and then you have the holidays coming, and fast coming. And I described it in a pretty negative light. Someone afterwards commented to me, probably a family member, I don't remember who now, said, why do you say it that way? Like, that's very strong. So I agree. In my attempt to make teshuvah from saying it the wrong way, we're giving this class, and the goal of this class is to change the mentality that a lot of us have towards this time of year. A lot of us come to this time of year with a nervousness, a lack of excitement, a, like I said, a little bit of negativity, and a little bit in the back of our mind, we're just kind of hoping, get me to Sukkot. That mindset is tragic and is a tremendous mistake. Our goal today is to change it. There's a Mishnah. It's the Mishnah about Rosh Hashanah in Masechet Rosh Hashanah. And the Mishnah writes, it talks about how different times of the year are judgment for different things. So Pesach is judgment for the week, wheat, Sukkot is judgment for the water, and Shavuot is judgment for the fruit. And then the Mishnah says, Berosh Hashanah, on Rosh Hashanah, Kol Ba'e Olam, all of the humans in the world, they pass before God, they pass before Hashem, maron. What does bene maron mean? So the Gemara says, the Gemara itself struggles. What does bene maron mean? So the Gemara, two pages later, has three explanations for the words kebne maron. Again, every other time of the year, the world is judged on their fruit, judged on their water, judged on their wheat. On Rosh Hashanah, it doesn't even say the word judged, although we know that's what it is. But it says, it refers to it in a different way. Kol olam, all the people of the world, pass before Hashem ke maron. What is bnei maron? So the Gemara has three explanations. The first one says the Gemara is ke amra, like sheep. Like sheep that if you're taking off a tenth of the sheep, what they would do is you'd have a corral full of sheep, and then you'd open the door, and the sheep would leave single file. And then you'd pick every tenth one to go to Maaseh Behemah. 
So just like the sheep leave the corral single file, we humans are judged on Rosh Hashanah single file. Amar Eshlakish Ashakis has a different explanation to the word Kibne Maron. When it says we pass before God, Kibne Maron, and we're judged, he says, here's what it means. It means, Kimalot Bet Maron. He says it's like walking up the mountain of Maron. I don't know what this mountain is, but it's a mountain. And you'd walk up the mountain in order when you've ever went on a mountain, it's a windy road to get up the mountain. It gets thinner and thinner. By the time you get to the top of the mountain, you're walking over the mountain, singing file. So they pass Kibne Maron means they pass over the mountain single file. And we also are judged like that, that we're like people who are passing over the mountain single file. And the Gemara then has one third explanation and then I'm going to try to do, explain it all to you. Gemara says, Amar Rabbi Yudah, Amar Shemuel, here's what Bnei Maron means. Like the soldiers of David Hamela's army that walked out to war single file. So here's my question. I got it. We're being judged one at a time. We pass before God one at a time. Why do I need three different explanations to say the same thing? The first explanation said they come through like sheep. The second one said like walking over a mountain. The third one said like soldiers in the army. Why do I need three different explanations to say the same thing? So we're going to give you an explanation from a commentary called Avodat David. And this, hopefully, will make our point. He says the world, human beings, even Jews, have three different approaches to Rosh Hashanah. One approach that people have to Rosh Hashanah is like sheep. They have no clue what's going on. Sheep go past out the corral. They have no idea what's happening. They're just leaving the corral. They don't know what's, what's flying. There are many people that come into Rosh Hashanah and their number one priority is to figure out what kind of ejeh to make the, the, the simanim in. For all the people around the world, ejeh is, I don't know how to describe ejeh. How do I describe ejeh for people in different countries? I don't know. Omelet? I don't know if that works. I don't know. Latka? I don't know. Anyhow, the point is, they're thinking about, let me use a different one, what kind of honey to get on the table for the apple. The point is, or what new outfit they have for the holiday. They're coming like sheep. They have no clue what's happening. And sometimes you see it sadly in our shuls. You'll see, this is what I'm talking about men in this case. You'll see men come unbelievably late to shul on Rosh Hashanah. Because they make a calculation. Prayers end about 1.30. So they work backwards. If I come at 11, I'm there for two and a half hours, that's enough. You missed everything. And don't laugh at me, because every school in this community has people that come 10, 10, 30, 11, because they have no clue where Rosh Hashanah is. I don't even want to blame them. Maybe it's not their fault. They have no clue they have what Rosh Hashanah is. So they just show up, excuse the expression, like sheep, just having no idea what this day is about. And then there's a second category of people, which is hopefully more common. And as our community is growing, many people, I would say, would fit into this category. And those are the people that are like walking to Rosh Hashanah like they're walking on top of a mountain. They're frightened. Rosh Hashanah is Judgment Day. 
They're coming to Rosh Hashanah scared. Just like if you were walking over a mountain, you'd be tiptoeing. Because if you go to the right, you're going to fall. If you go to the left, you're going to fall. And since you're afraid of that, you're very nervous as you're crossing the top of the mountain. And so many people come to Rosh Hashanah scared and scared of the judgment. And most of us would say that this is a very high level. But there's a higher level. And those are the people that come to Rosh Hashanah like the soldiers in David HaMelech's army. When a soldier goes out to war, he knows it's scary, but he's not scared. He knows it's frightening, but he's not frightened. Because he knows he is lucky to be a soldier in the king's army. He's lucky to represent the king. And he goes out proud. He goes to dangerous territory with pride. There's a category of people that come to Russia and are like sheep. No idea. There's a higher category of people that come like walking on top of the mountain. Very afraid of which way it's going to go. And rightfully so. But there's an even higher category of people that know that in Rosh Hashanah, they're getting the chance to serve royalty. And they're carrying themselves like this is an opportunity to be a part of royalty. Looking forward to this time of year, there's no dread, there's no nervousness and fear. This time of year needs to be full of pride. I'm standing before Rosh Hashanah. I'm going to stand before the king. I'm prepared as a soldier. And yes, there are scary moments and frightening moments and tenuous moments for a soldier. But when you're a soldier, your main emotion is pride, way more dominant than fear. To try and explain this point, and a little bit what triggered this point, is that last week, the world lost Queen Elizabeth. So, I took the liberty to look up some of the rules of the life she lives by. Because a lot of times, we, get, we feel like we have a lot of rules in our life, and sometimes like we feel like those rules are a little much. So I wanted to read Queen Elizabeth's rules. So somewhere I found her top 25 rules that she has to live by. I'm not going to share all 25 with you. I have seven that I thought were relevant. Her and her whole children, the whole monarchy, has a very strict dress code. Usually very modest, and they're almost never allowed to dress casual. Like no one in the royal family owns sweatpants. They're not allowed to dress casual. Give you another rule. Even when they travel, they always have to have a full black outfit. That's from hat to shoes, a full black outfit with them. Because just in case, if somewhere they're traveling, a death happens, they have to be prepared for a funeral. So every time they get on a plane, they have to have a full head-to-toe black outfit. Preparedness. Number three, I want to say it's the right way. They're not allowed to show any public, I don't know how to say this in a rabbinical way, affection. No public affection allowed. So they could have a wonderful marriage. It's not your business. And it's no one's allowed to see it in any way. Number four, they're not allowed to sign autographs or take selfies. So you can't go to with Prince, what's his name, Henry, George, or whatever. You can't go, oh, let's go. You can't do that because he's royal. And royalty acts differently. 
And royalty doesn't just stand somewhere with a nice sunset in the background, stick out their tongue and take a selfie. That's not how royalty does it. Here's another one. This was a chidush to me. Rule number five, they're not allowed to play board games because it could get too competitive. And they don't want to trigger that kind of competitivism. Competitive, I'm using the word wrong. That, I, I, I woke up at four in the morning, so I'm exhausted. I just flew from out of town, don't ask. So they, because of that, they don't, they're not allowed to play board games. Number six, this is an interesting one. Two, and I'm just going to give you one more. Two heirs to the throne are not allowed to fly on the same plane. So one of these great-grand, one of these children, whatever, that recently when he becomes 12, he cannot fly in a plane with his father. Because, I guess, danger has two of them are never allowed to be on the plane at the same time. And then number seven is they're never allowed to speak outside, to anyone outside without permission. So that means if you ask about something that's happening in the royal family, and I'm part of the royal family, my answer would be no comment. Because they have rules. You want to be royal? There's rules. Even though, and I'm sure, there are times when they wake up and they say, wow, this is pretty restrictive. And then someone would come over to them and say, it's very restrictive. Do you want to trade? And they'd be no way. I get a chance to be part of this family. It's worth it. This needs to be the emotion and the mentality of a Jew. On Rosh Hashanah and all year round, we're standing before God as royalty. And there's a lot of restrictions when you're part of royalty. You can't play board games. You need to carry a black outfit with you wherever you go. Like a man putting Tiffany, has Tiffany with him on his plane. Why do I have Tiffany? Just in case I need it. I have a Sidur with me. Why do I need to do this? Because I'm part of royalty. That's why I dress a certain way. It's why I eat a certain way. It's why I talk a certain way. It's why there's words I can use and many words I can't use because I'm royalty. This is not something to feel restrictive or something to feel negative about. It's something to feel incredibly proud of. And that needs to be our dominant feeling. Pride. Pride and not just pride in being a Jew. Pride in the rules. Pride in the rules of royalty. Pride in the rules that make us us. And when you look at these same rules as very restrictive, they kind of weigh you down. But when you look at them as rules that in unleash royalty, they lift you up. The same rules. When you hear the rules about them, you kind of get entertained. You're like, wow, yes, they, they really consider themselves in point. You don't say, oh, wow, it's silly. You say, wow, they're really in point. Everything they do, every move they make is in point, just like you. There's a pasuk in, in Tehillim that I thought um, was kind of perplexing to me, but then, once you think about it, makes a beautiful point. There's a pasuk is as follows. Yismechu ha-shamayim, the heavens are celebrating. V'tagel ha-aretz, and the land is rejoicing. Yir'am hayam umla'ah, the ocean is overflowing and thunderous. Everyone's excited, the land, the heavens, the ocean. Ya'loz sadai v'chol ha-sherba, and my field will rejoice with everything inside of it. And then we'll sing all the trees of the forest. 
So what's going on here? The heavens are excited. The earth is celebrating. The ocean is thundering. The trees, the fields are dancing. Why? Because Hashem is coming. He's coming to judge the land. So you read this pasuk and you're like, really? Everyone's excited, dancing, singing, trees, grass. Everyone's dancing and singing because he's coming to judge. I don't know about you, if you ever had a court date, you dread that date. You're scared of that date. That date gives you nightmares. The trees are singing for the court date? The answer is, if you understand our court date of Rosh Hashanah in simplicity, that it's just a day of judgment, then it's scary. But if you understand that it's a day to renew your, your admission and your membership of the royal family, it's an exciting day. It's a day to celebrate. It's a day that I become me. It's a day that I understand who I am and where I stand. It's a day to rejoice. So I want to give you a few practical examples of things that may be difficult for people, that if we maybe look at it through the prism of royalty, maybe it'll be a little easier. The first one is technology. You know, I've had the opportunity to speak a lot about technology this year in one major speech outside of the community. And the reality is that religious Jewish people across the Jewish world are thinking and rethinking their engagement with technology. And at this point, wherever we are, September 14th, 2022, every religious Torah Jew needs to be thinking a lot about the technology that they have and the technology they don't need to have. Where we all got sucked in four, five, six years ago to everything the world was throwing at us, I think most open-minded, smart people are realizing that maybe not everything they're selling do I need to buy. Maybe not every social media piece, maybe not every post, maybe not every joke, maybe not everything, maybe not every picture do I need to see. And so, but the reality is, it's hard. No one can tell you that making restrictions on yourself in technology is easy. No one can tell you it's easy. Oh, I have this phone, I have that phone, it's so easy. No, it's not. It's hard. It's difficult. It's difficult to make technology adjustments. The reality is, it's much easier to have everything. It's much easier to have an unfiltered, I don't know, smart, iPhone, whatever the number is, 14, whatever. It's much easier to have every social media and every game and everything in the world and every app on my phone. It's much easier easier that way for commoners but for royalty the phones need to look different and for royalty restrictions aren't things we're scared of it's something we embrace i want to give a real live example so last thursday i gave a little zoom class to a bunch of young men and in the class i mentioned something about fantasy football so they really liked what I said. So I said, you know what, this is a good idea. Let me make a little video out of this. So I made a video on Saturday night, some of you probably saw it, about fantasy football. You saw the video? Good. And here's what I said. I said in the video, I said, listen, this NFL season is starting this weekend. It was this past weekend. 
And it was really geared to young men, this video. It said, fantasy football is a phenomenon that's taking over the world. And the reality is this, I don't know if it's gambling or not, it's not my, I'm not getting into that. I don't know if it's addictive or not, I'm not getting into that, I'm just saying this. So summer ends, the winter comes, it's a little boring, it's a little cold, it's, a, you know, you get home, the, the sun sets early. So to have the camaraderie on a Thursday night, a Monday night, and all day Sunday, and all week, to go back and forth with your friends, is fun, and that's why a lot of people like fancy football. I said, but there's a but. The sun is rebellious. And the son, there's a strong punishment. And Rabbi says, why is it a strong punishment? The kid's rebellion was not so bad. He stole wine and, and meat. It's bad, but it's not so bad. Why is the punishment so strong? And the Torah says, and the rabbis say, because we can project where this kid is headed. And so, I said, I said, there's another side to fantasy football. The other side is obsession. The other side is that there are many young men in this community who are involved in fantasy football and they can't breathe. You can't talk to them Thursday night. Sunday, if they're married, they literally don't know their wife. It's nothing to do with them on Sundays. Monday night, again, they have won. They're down by five points. They're waiting for their, this last receiver to get his points. And they're obsessed. They can't talk to them. And then they lose by one point because of some accident that happened in another game. So all week, they're on ESPN. They're checking the reports. They're checking Things. I said, young men, you're adults, you can make your own decision. But is this camaraderie or is this an obsession that's literally distorting your religion, even distorting your ability to build your career? Because you can't succeed sitting in an office or sitting in a meeting going like this all day, worrying about some player that's injured on your team to start somebody else. I said, you need to decide if this is fun and a nice distraction or if this is an obsession that's really hurting your life. A lot of feedback, a lot of positive feedback. Great job, Rabbi. Great job, Rabbi. Uh, maybe 10,000 people watch it. Great job, great job, great. The next day I was talking to a rabbi, and I said, you know, I made a video of fancy football. He says, yeah, but not everyone liked it. I said, not everyone liked it? He says, yeah, there's... And I was like, oh, really? I said, I said, it's your choice. I didn't even tell them what to do. I said, are these boys that like hate me? He said, no, they like you, but still. Scares them because they're so obsessed. They're so addicted to, in September, October, November, December, and January that even if you bring up the topic and maybe their girlfriend or their fiancé or their mother or their wife or someone's, God forbid, going to say, by the way, you see what Rabbi Haber said? They're so scared of it that like, they're upset. He didn't want to tell them what to do because I know how touchy it is. Those boys sitting there on a Wednesday, obsessing over their players on Thursday, Sunday, and Monday, are people that forgot their royalty. And they're so connected to the technology, and they're so wrapped in that they literally forgot who they are. So if you say it in a restrictive way, it's scary. But if you look at it the right way with royalty, it shouldn't be.
It should be uplifting. It should be, yes, yes, fancy football was created for the world. Maybe it's good for the world, but not for you. Not for you that you have every minute of your life is powerful and important. You're really sitting and going all five months on this. Are you really doing that? They're going to be more angry at me now. Is a pasuk. Who is like your nation, like Israel, this nation in the world? And I saw one commentary ask a question. It should say, Mi ke'amcha Yisrael. Who is like your nation, the Jewish people? It doesn't say that. It says, Mi ke'amcha ke Yisrael. Who is like your nation, like the Jewish people? Why ke ke? Why ke'amcha, like your nation, like Yisrael? Why the like twice? And the answer is this, that Hashem is saying, I am proud of my people. When they're ke Yisrael, and even if they're just ke'amcha, even if they're simple people, even if they don't see their own royalty, they need to realize what they mean to me. Ki Yisrael is special, and even a person who doesn't realize he's Ki Yisrael, who just thinks he's Ka'amcha, is And here's what inspired me to this one. As some of everyone here probably knows at this point, there was a Chinese restaurant in Manalapin, New Jersey, that a zillion people used, that had, that pretty much sold um, straight up unkosher, not like not so good, straight up unkosher meat. And a lot of our community members ate it. So, I was talking to a young rabbi a day or two ago, and we were talking about the kashrut thing, and he tells me, he says, you know what the problem is? He says, most people in this community don't realize that even before the story, they shouldn't have been eating in that place. I said, why? He says, you have to know the difference between a kashrut and a kashrut. We all think... Especially on restaurants, are not as strong. And we need to know that. And the owner of the store makes a humongous difference. And if you could trust the owner of the restaurant and it has a great kashrut, you're in good shape. But if you can't trust the owner of the restaurant, then you already have two strikes, and we should have known that. I said, wow, I didn't know that. He says, but we should have known that. The truth is, in our community, we're just so proud of ourselves if we don't eat out. Like, if we eat in a kosher restaurant, we pretty much think we deserve four awards, we should be getting a medallion from the president, we forget it because we eat in a kosher restaurant. But the truth is, not all kosher is created equal. And I know as I'm saying it, like, wow, Rabbi, that's hard to hear. You're telling me even kosher isn't kosher? I'm telling you, yeah, there's rules. There's details. There's a fine line. The dinner, and all of a sudden, they're serving everybody meat, and then they come and they serve me like some stuffed cabbage. So I'm looking at the stuffed cabbage, and I'm like, okay, I take one bite, it's horrible. And I take another, so then I, look, then I, like, I didn't realize, and I'm looking at everyone, I said, everyone else having steak, and I got stuffed cabbage. Is this not wrong? I didn't even speak yet. I didn't even make a mistake yet. What are you, what are you doing? So then they came on, they said, no, it's, the, the whole room here is Moroccans, and they don't care about Bet Yosef. 
And we figured, you care about Bet Yosef, so we gave you stuffed, ca stuffed cabbage. So I don't know if it's cabbage, I don't even know what it was. And I'm eating it, and I'm like, this is brutal. I just flew, I'm starving, I'm exhausted, I need a little energy. I don't know if it had some kind of Moroccan spice or something, but whatever was in that stuff was like so, it was really not edible. And I'm like suffering through it. I'm like, but you know what? This is what it means, kashrut. And I'm looking at very religious Jews on the side, like this kolel people. I'm like, I'm not better than them. They're more religious than I am. Why am I have to struggle here? But this is what royalty means. This is our responsibility. Well, I better be careful if they hear it. I had a wonderful experience. It was fantastic. <laughs> the dinner was beautiful. That one dish wasn't really great, but everything else was a wonderful night, okay? So I'm going to make sure that he like, okay. It really was a wonderful experience. Everyone there was fantastic. It just, when they served that dish, I was like, what did I do wrong? Okay. I want to tell you a wonderful story. Over this past weekend, there was someone in the community who was a pretty unique person. His name was Rabbi Aryeh Lightstone. And he visited many shuls in the community. He was the assistant to David Friedman, who was the American ambassador to Israel during the Trump administration. And David Friedman himself was a religious Jew, and I read his book recently, and the beauty of the book is that he's not just proud of Israel, he's proud to be a Jew, and he's proud of the Torah. And he talks about the Torah, and he talks about Hashem. It's awesome to see. His assistant, this is how proud he was, is a rabbi, Rabbi Aryeh Lightstone. So Rabbi Aryeh Lightstone came to the community, spoke in a few different shuls, and in one of the shuls he told the story. He said he was part, him and David Friedman were a big part of making the peace that happened called the Abraham Accords that was made at the end of the Trump administration. And they had made peace with Baha Israel, had made peace with Bahrain, a Muslim country. He says, after the peace treaty was made, we went into the next room, which was a gorgeous ballroom of the crown prince of Bahrain. And all of the different dignitaries were all at this long, long table. He says, like the movies, long, long table, big chairs and all these waiters and big dishes. He says, and I sat down, and I couldn't eat. And the crown prince of Bahrain noticed that I wasn't eating. So he says, you're not eating. I said, listen, I only eat kosher, so I can't eat it. He says, no problem. He tells his servants, they come in, they whisk away his plate. They come back a little while later with another plate of cooked vegetables. And he doesn't eat it. So now the crown prince says, What's, what happened now? He says, no, even cooked vegetables, it's cooked with your oils and your pots and whatever. I, I can't eat that either. Even, he says, wow, you can't even eat that? And he didn't eat. The event ends. He goes into the car. The security guards, his drivers, all Bahrainian people, if that's how you say it. And then one of the guards comes back out to the car and says, the crown prince wants to speak with you. So now he can't say no. His drivers are all Bahrainian, so he can't say no. He goes back into the crown prince. And the crown prince says, I want to tell you something. I was watching you sit there. He says, and I identify with it. He says, you think I'm just the crown prince? He says, but I have a life. And I happen to be very athletic. And I run and do triathlons. And sometimes when I do triathlons all in different places around the world, they serve big meals afterwards. And they serve all kinds of meat. But I also have rules of halal. And I am the crown prince. So if I'm the crown prince, I can't transgress the rules. So I don't eat. 
He says, and I'm watching you, and I was able to identify with your strength to be able to not eat. And that's how we have to feel. When, I, when there's, we say that there's even some kosher restaurants you can't go to, and you say, oh, wow, that's restrictive. No, it's not. You're the crown prince. And the crown prince has rules. And he says an interesting final to that story is that the crown prince then brought him to his father, who's the king of Bahrain, and told him the story. He says the father didn't seem so impressed. But then the father called in one of his officers and said, I am making a law right now in this country. One of our main hotels is going to have kosher in it, a full kosher chef and kitchen. And any Jew that ever comes to Bahrain has to be able to get kosher in any hotel in the country whenever they want. So, but if it comes, you're like, oh, I can't believe I'm eating cabbage. No, no, no. It's, I can't believe I'm excited and embrace the fact that I am royal. And I want to give one more example. And this is honesty. I think sometimes when it comes to honesty, especially when people don't see, there are times that we think that the rules can be fudged. And the reality is that we that represent Hashem and are proud to do so, like soldiers in King David's army, those of us that look at ourselves that way need to be clear that there's integrity in everything we do. It's not so easy because sometimes the natural response is not always honest. And sometimes the natural response is to twist it or to trade it or to change it. But we have to be able to represent this way. I'll give you one, other, one, one more wonderful story and then a couple of thoughts to end the speech. My daughter told me the story. She heard it from some speaker. There was a religious Jew who pulled up to a gas station in Passaic. It's a very religious community there. He pulls up to the gas station, and the, the person who's giving the gas comes over to him and says, can I just tell you something? He says, what? He says, there was a Jew who just came a few minutes ago and filled up with gas, $55. This must have been 50 years ago. $55 filled up with gas, and... Um, he didn't pay. He just left without paying. Do you believe it? He says, I was surprised. So now this religious man is sitting in the car, he doesn't know what to do, what should I do? I can't believe it. Hashem, the man left without paying. He stole, left without paying. So he tells the man, he says, you know what, no problem. I'll pay it. I'll pay the man $55. And he paid it and he left. He goes home, now the next night he can't believe it. He says, a religious Jew came to a gas station and left without paying? Like, that's really disappointing. It's really disappointing. It's kind of on his mind, back of his mind. Two or three weeks later, he reads a story in the news that there's a member of the gas station who's robbing all kinds of religious Jews. He pulled this stunt on hundreds of people. And every one of the Jews said, okay, I'll pay the $55 to make a Kiddush Hashem. How gorgeous is that story? We, this is how we think. And we're proud that we think this way. We're not scared and nervous. We have pride. We're proud that we think this way. You know who knows this more than anyone? Our biggest adversary. The Gemara writes on Rosh Hashanah, we sound the Shofar a hundred times. Technically, you don't need to do a hundred times. Minimum nine, really thirty. But why do we do a hundred? You definitely don't need any more than thirty. 
says the Gemara, famous answer, to confuse the Satan. And no one really knows what it means to confuse the Satan, but here's Tosafot's explanation. Tosafot says that the Satan, our enemy, the person who is the prosecutor against us in Rosh Hashanah, when he hears the shofar being blown so many times, he thinks Mashiach already came. And that scares him because he thinks Mashiach already came. So the commentaries have a beautiful question. We've been blowing the shofar thousands of years. You really think Mashiach already came? Every day we keep blowing the shofar. He didn't come last year, the year before, the year before, the year before. Relax, at this point, I'll be relaxed. I wouldn't be too nervous. He hasn't come a thousand times before. He's probably not coming this time. The answer is, that's what us mortals think. That, ah, who knows if he's ever coming. But the Satan knows he's about to come. The Satan knows how royal you are. The Satan knows how close you are to bringing Mashiach. He knows. You don't know. We forget. We don't remember. He remembers. So we're just, ah, it's a shofar. We've heard it a million times. He's saying to himself, I know in heaven how close they are. I know they're this close. If you know they're this close, then you say, wow, maybe this is the year. But we don't live with that mentality. This is the mindset that needs to change. Elul Roshanah is not supposed to be a scary time. Of course, there's some element of scariness, but the dominant feeling should be a feeling of pride. The dominant feeling should be a feeling of being a part of the king's army, a part of royalty, and proud to carry the throne. And just like the Queen of Elizabeth and the Queen of England has rules, She's got rules, and to be part of that family, there are rules. And those rules seem restrictive if you don't realize the reward of being royal. The same thing is true to have deal with us. We have a lot of rules, and they seem restrictive if you don't realize the royalty that's embedded in it. And if you don't realize the royalty, and we just gave you three examples, technology, kashur, and honesty. There's obviously a million more. But I tried to pick three different types that are just random examples to start to trigger the brain. We need to be thinking this way, and this has to be the mindset that we approach life with. Let me end with one last little story. I had a lot of stories today. I'll give you one more. So... And it was just a chance to see kind of the relationship we have with Hashem. So last Sunday, where are we now? Wednesday. Last Sunday, my wife and I, we moved back from Deal. Now our family is getting pretty azim. Mashallah, we have nine kids, but some are married. Other ones are in yeshiva. We're down to three in the house, okay? So that means that all the heavy lifting goes to daddy, Okay? So now I came in in the morning, unloaded a car, went back to deal Sunday, came back in my car, my wife had her car, my daughter had another car, the one married daughter that lives here, so three car loads, I'm unloading all three car loads, it's now 11.30 at night, I don't know if I hit the wall or not, I probably did, I was like, ah, oh, I can't, wow, the house is full of bigs, so exhausted, my kids are like, what's going on, dad, I said, I don't know, all these packages, and I got a lot on my mind, I don't know. So I sit down on the couch, exhausted, and I tell my kids, I say, you know what, do me a favor, get me um, the phone. The daily dose that day was me. Daily dose is something that Torah anytime sends out, a little clip to like 40,000 people, so they take different rabbis, that day it was me. I know it was me, but I didn't have a chance to hear it or, or anything. 
I said, now, I, I'll, I'll listen to it now. Let me see what kind of nivuah Hashem has for me. Those are my words. Let me see what kind of nivuah Hashem has for me. And then I played the clip. Here's the clip. Okay, this is me talking. There was once a poor man who was walking on the road. And he has a lot of packages on his back. Piled up high with packages. And, he's, and it's difficult. And as he's walking, a wealthy man is in a horse and buggy in a carriage. Passes by and he sees the poor man. He says, oh, do you need a ride? Come, hop on the carriage. The poor man says, oh, thank you so much. And he jumps on the carriage with all his packages still on his back. 20 minutes later, the packages are still on his back. So the wealthy man says to the poor man, why don't you take off your packages and put it in the luggage compartment? Like... You know, why do you have to carry it on your back? And the poor man says, no, no, no. I, I, I want, I, you have, it's bad enough that I'm on the carriage. I feel bad to also put my baggages on the carriage. So I want to keep it on my back. The wealthy man says, genius, whether it's on your back or not, it's on the carriage either way. So you might as well put it on the carriage. And the analogy is that sometimes in life, we think we have to carry our packages. And we have to carry all of that stuff. Because we have to own it. And we have to stop and realize Hashem says, I'm driving the carriage anyhow. Whether you're holding it or not holding it, I'm holding it. So give me your packages and let me hold it for you. And that was the message on the video. And my eight-year-old son is standing there. He says, wow, you were just talking about packages and just carrying all these packages and talking about how much you have on your mind. That's exactly what the video was. It was unbelievable. And what was so cool about it is that the video, the clip they took, wasn't from a class a week ago or two weeks ago. It was from at least a year and a half ago. How do I know? The background was my father's old shoe. So it's at least a year and a half old. And Hashem says this day, I'm just going to talk to you direct. And sitting on the couch, I felt so relieved. I felt like, wow, Hashem, I, right now in this moment, with all these bags and all these boxes in the house, with a million things on my brain, and I'm not good when I'm not organized. So with all these things on my brain, you just came down to talk to me directly. I really feel like I'm your son. And everyone in this room has had those moments. Everyone in this room has had times where things were said or something happened that you said, wow, that's eerie. It's like directed towards me. That's what you get when you're part of the royal family. Don't be scared of it. Don't be afraid of it. Embrace it and be proud of it because there are rules to royalty. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Was that Hashem?